Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start, if you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. I'm Sam Moores, and with us today, we have Ed Bernarden. Hello. Hey, Sam. Nice to be here. You're welcome. Can you tell the audience a little bit about sort of who you are and what you do? Well, I work for Siemens, and Siemens is a gigantic company, 350,000 people, and we were part of a little startup that they bought about 10 years ago. And I get involved in a lot of projects related to autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, that type of thing, that brings together a lot of these different divisions that Siemens has. Nice. So, yeah, you're in a part of a massively broad umbrella company, but how did this... How did this sort of take off? How did you get into all of this? And what's your sort of journey been? Well, uh, well, I actually grew up in Indianapolis. I've always been a race fan. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, initially worked for General Motors, the Detroit Diesel Allison division, then decided to uh, go to grad school. And uh, after grad school, ended up working on robots. And the first okay. company I worked with was Draper Labs, and we were making robots to make clothes. So really, really good at like manipulating flexible materials. And we figured out that if we could apply that expertise to carbon fiber, that there'd be uh, a lot bigger companies that could afford robots like right. uh, Car and, and Arrow. And uh, we built a lot of machines uh, for that over a period of three, four years. And then we developed this piece of software that could figure out if you had a piece of carbon fiber in that came off the roll, what its shape would have to be when you cut it on that roll so that it would fit perfectly in three dimensions. And, and it sounds like a simple thing, but we grew the company, there's four of us to start it to about 80 people. And that's really when 
um, really started getting back into motorsports by selling to Formula One teams, but also aerospace and, and car companies, that kind of thing. Anyone that was making things that was lightweight and fast. And then we were acquired by Siemens almost 10 years ago now. And uh, we continue to do all that work with that carbon fiber software and, and design software. But one of the things I noticed when I was at Siemens is that there's all these different divisions. Like we're in the engineering software division, but there's Siemens Mobility, there's Siemens Energy, uh, uh, healthcare, all these things. And I found an opportunity in Boston because Siemens controls the traffic lights there. And I knew, uh, I knew some people that were in the autonomous car business to see if we could combine Siemens connected vehicle technology with uh, uh, in Boston to help with this autonomous vehicle test. Again, that ended up being uh, my first exposure to this mobility division. Okay. And it led to many projects, most of which are actually in the motorsports area. Nice. So you've, you've, you've been involved in so many sort of different aspects on the way through. Um, winding back sort of to the early, earlier sort of times, um, when you started, yeah, come up with this idea of how can we come up with some software to sort of design the right amounts of carbon and stuff like that. How do you approach a problem like that? Did you sort of look at it and go, this is an issue that I see and then just crack on with a very small amount of people? I think you, you've got the answer. Um, the first thing is there has to be a need. Yeah. And that need just popped up. Um, and it came from the fact that we were building these machines. Many of them were forming machines. So you'd take the material and you'd put it. At, they were actually machines that would have like two sheets of rubber. You'd put the material in between the rubber and then push it down over a shape. Okay. And the reason for that is so that the material wouldn't wrinkle because carbon fiber is not strong if it has wrinkles in it. you got to keep those fibers right. straight in a line. And we were constantly saying, oh, we cut the shape wrong. Or yeah, sometimes <laughs> you'd make like little cuts into the material. We call them darts so that it doesn't wrinkle. And we said, oh, there has to be a piece of software out there that does that. Seems like a simple problem. Yeah. And there wasn't. And so we wrote one on our own. And, and every time we'd bring people in to see the machines, they say, hey, tell us about that software you have. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's really how it happened. Then we said, hey, maybe we could make money doing this. And so we gave it a try. But, you know, there, there was a professor actually at MIT that was working with us. And I was walking out of Draper Labs at the time. And I said, hey, I'm leaving. I'm going to start a company that figures out the shape for carbon fiber patterns. And he just shook his head and said, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to buy that? And because nothing looks good when you first start. But, yeah, yeah. you know, we began by selling primarily to uh, uh, aerospace companies. And the the more the requirement for speed and lightweight, the greater the need for this type of software. So a fighter plane, helicopters, right. uh, willing to pay a lot of money to do that. And we finally got to the point where we said, hey, maybe we should expand our business uh, to, to Europe and so, you know, our, our market analysis was, let's go to the UK because they speak the same language or yep. close to the language we speak. And the first trip we actually took over there was uh, Schwartz Brothers, which is uh, now it's called Bombardier. They make planes. And the other one was to Benetton that makes the Formula One cars. 
And yeah, awesome. I remember it was the first time I'd ever been to an F1 uh, facility where they actually do the engineering. The guy was giving us a tour. I was so excited. Actually, he opened the door. They were testing motors, and I sort of ran in to take a look, and he immediately grabbed me. All these guards, people came over, pushed me out the door, said, hey, you can't go in there. But <laughs> but anyways, it's, um, you know, at the time, there was just like four or five of us, and over time, we grew that uh, through a lot of ups and downs, as with most, most businesses, to so about 80 people or so. That's, that's quite a big, big group of people to be managing and dealing with. Did your day-to-day change a lot then throughout that oh, process? Yes, yes. And so so there's four people. And I think uh, we were really, really fortunate. I'm not sure if we exactly planned this, but we were excellent compliments to each other. Now, my education was in engineering, but when we were doing this business at the Draper Laboratory with the machines, I'd taken on more of a role of trying to bring the business in. So there's four people. I was the head of sales and the only salesperson. And uh, that lasted, I would say, maybe a year to year and a half. And then gradually we start to bring in more and more salespeople. And I think this is an interesting thing because uh, certainly I'm an engineer, so I appreciate the technical aspects of what we were selling. And we knew a lot about carbon fiber, so it was really great to try and sell them the software when I knew I already knew a lot about laying up composites and all the yeah. problems you have when you do that. And so we grew the business, I don't know, from nothing to about, let's just say maybe about $10 million or so. And I was the head of sales. And what ends up happening is at first you're selling. You know, it's just me or maybe me and four or five salespeople. But when you get to the point where you have like, let's say, a $10 million company, the sales uh, vice president ends up doing primarily two things, making projections with Excel spreadsheets and hiring and firing salespeople. And you hire and file salespeople quite a bit. And it really wasn't that much fun. And uh, we brought in a new VP of sales. And then I took over introducing new products to the market. And... We did that in a little bit of a different way. I've come to find out now that I've worked at Siemens and some other places that we would, uh, for instance, the the product we introduced first was a product for car interior design. Again, this flexible material. So we could figure out the patterns for all the pieces in a car seat. And what we would do, it was my job to make the first one or two sales and, and and when we say sales, it would be to the big companies like uh, Audi or Magna yeah. or something like that. And then yeah, and I would get my pick of the, oh, I want this uh, uh, demo engineer and I want this product guy. I'd get the best ones. And we'd go out and do that. And then once we were able to make those sales, then we would transfer that over to the regular, regular salespeople. So but anyways, that was and that's a role I played right to the right to the bitter end. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So it is a bit of a shift. It is a bit of a shift. Yeah. I imagine with, like, let's say the the carbon fiber, like when you're pitching to a Formula One team or or something, you know, what are you sort of pitching to them? Are you saying, okay, we're going to use the exact right amount of material, I guess. But then also it sounds like you're able to then really up the quality level because of all these other little tricks. Is that, is that the sort of the move? Yeah, it's actually uh, both those things. It's one is time. There's all everybody wants to reduce time to market, and mm. and there's quality. So you're either keeping the quality the same and making it faster, uh, 
or you're in the same amount of time creating greater quality or both. So in Formula One, you know, you, you go out and you uh, have a race in two weeks, you got to change things. Yeah. So, so you got a two week cycle of uh, redesigning, then converting that into all the information you need on the manufacturing floor. And then uh, you got to make the tooling and everything else. And then you got to make it and you put it onto the car. So uh, it, the creation of the flat patterns, when we were first trying to sell these, we thought we had this great idea and we'd go into a company, not so much Formula One, but more in the aerospace company and say, oh, we don't need that. We have this person that is an expert at making flat patterns. And yeah. of course, we had to try and get around that person we were trying to sell. We're basically eliminating his job. Yeah. And it's sometimes it's hard for people to see when it's the first product on the market to, to see that it's really something that they need. Yeah. But what we would do is uh, when we'd go, we'd explain, hey, it's going to take less time. Your patterns will be right the first time. Because when you don't have a piece of software like this or when that creative expert is not so yeah. good, it usually takes two or three tries. You know, yeah. you, you make it, it's wrong. Maybe you make some little cuts in it, uh, darts as they call them to get it to fit. And we would say, tell you what, give us a model of one of your parts and we'll give you a free set of patterns. It only take <laughs> us a few minutes. And that's pretty much how we would sell. It got to the point for a short period of time where we could sometimes make sales without even visiting face-to-face. -face. Then eventually, other companies, you know, within three, four, five years, some other companies got into the business too. So then things got yeah. a little bit tougher. But in the end, uh, the fact that we understood the problem really, really well and uh, you know, like I said, laid up composites and all that gave us gave us an advantage. And it's, and are they giving you like I guess with the manufacturers and stuff, they've got the CAD drawings. They send you some sort of CAD format, and then you put it into the software. Boom! Out comes the output. Pretty much, they'll give you a shape, and they'll say this is the outside edge of the shape. And now they've done all the analysis, so they know. Oh, we need you know twelve ply stick. Zero yeah. degrees, 90 degrees, this kind of a stack up. And then the, the actual, uh, I guess you could say structure of the material. Is it like a plain weave? There's all sorts of different types of weaves, and they change the behavior as to how soon it wrinkles. But you get three or four of these parameters plus the shape. And then you'd put a little line on that shape. I make it sound easy, but you, you put a little <laughs> I, line I on the shape. I can see there's some, some steps to this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of things in between. But you put a, 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 the outside edge of the part, and then it sort of marches out. And here's where it gets really, really tricky. And, and this is why those creative people were experts, is that let's say you had a, a complex shape. Uh, and it has to have curvature in two dimensions. So like maybe a nose on a Formula One car, a nose cone yeah. or something like that on a, on a missile or whatever. If you start at the, at the tip top and you push the material out or you start on the side, like the first time you contact, you get a completely different shape. And not only yeah. that, but the orientations of the fibers are different. And so structurally, the part can be, uh, the part can perform differently. And, yeah. and I remember when we were at Benetton, actually, that first Formula One, and, and uh, the guy that brought us in, he had actually made a video. Richard McCage was his name. And at the time, they used to do these side impact tests where the big weight would just slam down on the side pod. Yeah. And 
they never knew if it was going to work or not. And there's this <laughs> video of Richard sitting outside the test room with his head in his hands saying, I hope it works. I hope it works. And, and that, going back to your value question, certainly the time on, on, on creating the patterns is very, very important. But knowing that when you put that side pod into the test rig, that it's going to be okay because you yeah. know exactly where the fibers are is probably even more important. And then most of these things, because I know for a while, lots of stuff was like hand laid, but is that done more by robots nowadays? I guess in the application, it probably varies, but. Yeah, exactly. It does vary. Uh, It depends on the complexity of the shape. So in aerospace, like wing, wing skins, Mm. things like that, those for a very long time, like the flat wing skins have been made by robots that lay down little strips of tape and things like that. And um, the nice thing about wings is they have curvature only in one direction. So if you have curvature in one direction, it works out pretty good. When you start to get more complex shapes, and for instance, the 787, the Dreamliner, that's also made with robots. But instead of tape, they lay down these little one-eighth inch wide things called toes. And the nice thing about that is it can be steered so you can make more complex shapes. Right, yeah, yeah. But then you get into automotive. So uh, let's take a part on the, the 787. It might be 400 plies thick, the fuselage. Uh, fairly simple shape, but gigantic. So these robots, you know, fill, fill rooms. In automotive, you know, even something as simple, maybe a B-pillar you might be able to form, but most parts, certainly in Formula One, there's no, no automation whatsoever like a right. monocoque oh my god that's that would and that would be utterly impossible it's uh, it's all done pretty much by hand but they do try and do things to try and keep it consistent well, and that's, that's it yeah yeah so like for instance that um if you can get the pattern to be exactly right there's these laser they call them laser projection machines and they'll project a shape onto the tool or onto the previous layer and says place here and it'll okay, even give yeah. you the point on where to start the layup. Start here and push to the right or push to the left, that kind of thing. Okay. So it's made, it's made things a lot more consistent, I think. And uh, um, But automation is far, far away for Formula One. So just throw a lot of people at it. That's, that's the best way to do it. <laughs> yeah, and train them up and get them really good. That moment you're saying of watching the, whatever, a large heavy object smash into the side of a, a Formula One car, Tesco. I don't know why, I just had a vision of that... Um, the what was it the Tesla Model X launch when they got the sledgehammer? Oh uh, yes, and, and the big the steel ball <laughs> and threw it through the window and it just went straight through. <laughs> <laughs> Time to redesign the windows, I guess. Yeah, yeah. That was yeah. A, that was a, a funny moment. So you were in, you've been involved in these these sorts of things with that company, and then you've started in at Siemens. And have you been, you've been doing some, what have you been doing mainly at Siemens? Well, like I, certainly we continue this work with the software related to carbon fiber, all that, yeah. and, and design. But as I was mentioning before, uh, I've gotten involved in a lot of projects that bring different divisions together. And I would say primarily our division for engineering software with the mobility division, mm. intelligent traffic systems, that type of thing, and Siemens Energy. Uh, hydrogen and hydrogen uh, uh, as an alternative fuel. 
And most of my projects are related to, um, like I said, electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. And I try as much as possible to use racing uh, because racing provides the greatest uh, challenge in, in a lot of these areas. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, so uh, it, it, it involves, it's everything from managing projects in those areas to, you know, working with customers or potential customers to on feasibility of trying to do things. But they tend to be projects that are, I guess we we call them special projects. It's just another name for projects <laughs> nobody else wants to do. So. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so with the um, with the the traffic study stuff, and is that working on software for lights and how to optimize that and things like that? Well, the, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of different aspects to that, but what you hit on is like traffic light controller. So uh, divisions of Siemens do work on that. So it can be as basic as what you just described. And, and those those you know, those big boxes that you see on intersections yeah. that control the lights, exactly that. In, I guess, more recently, over the past decade or so, uh, at least, uh, it's become things like connected vehicles as well. Like uh, ve- they say vehicle to infrastructure, vehicle uh, communication, okay. those types of things. And, and that could be anything from, you know, uh, detecting uh, pedestrians that are crossing a street with sensors or whatever and communicating that information to cars or, or looking at the state of traffic and then changing the timing of the lights on the fly. So there's a little, you know, Siemens works on that. There's a lot of companies that are trying to work on that. It's, That's quite, uh, are, there, are there any, is any of that stuff implemented now? Yes, there's 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 certainly been a lot of pilots in Europe, uh, in Asia, as well as, as the United States in different corridors where they'll test mm-hmm. out some of these things. You know, they do tests on highway sections or, or intersections within cities. I know, uh, especially when it comes to autonomous cars uh, and uh, t- helping them gather as much information as they can in order to, to be able to, uh, you know, operate safely. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's out there. But it's a good point. If, if we were to leave our homes right now and say, hey, how many intelligent intersections are we going to drive <laughs> through? I, uh, the chances are you're not going to drive through one because, like, as always, there's different challenges besides the technologies. Well, who pays for it? Yeah. I mean, I remember the, uh, when we uh, were first talking to the city of Austin and, and uh, the Siemens Mobility people came up here and we were saying, hey, we can help you with autonomous vehicle testing. And we showed them all this great technology. And they said, oh, this would be great. Are the autonomous car companies going to pay for that? <laughs> <laughs> and, by, and you can imagine, right? Yeah. It, it sort of works the other way. So it's, uh, I, I think that's, that's part of it. Uh, but, you know, over time, I'm sure that we'll work it out. There are advantages. It, it would make streets a lot safer and a lot more efficient. Yeah, that's, that's for me, sounds like the obvious one. of Because I know when you look at a city, for example, and you've got all of these points of data, whether it's traffic going in that end, these traffic lights here, and we get it a lot in the UK where we have speed, uh, motorways that change speed. They might be 70 most of the time and then they're 50 because there's traffic and they're trying to reduce flow in or what, whatever the pollution or anything. Um, and I can imagine it starts off as a simple sort of like, okay, this light, if there's no one there, no pedestrians, we're not going to change it to red. 
but then I can imagine it gets incredibly complicated incredibly quickly as you start to connect more items into the chain. Yeah, and it changes throughout the day or if there's a football match or something going on Yeah, uh, in that time when people are going in and out and and, uh, all sorts of things like that, that. And knowing that, you can start to anticipate some of these things and start to do rerouting and, and all that to even avoid the problem in the first place. But we, we had another, uh, in fact, we're, it's really still ongoing, a project with the FIA. And the FIA has racing, uh, a racing division. We have some projects with them, but they also have a mobility division, which is less well-known. And we did a project with them to look at the use of traffic simulation with their clubs. So they have these motoring clubs. Primarily, they've been known in the past for helping drivers, you know, get their licenses, whatever it might be, the typical yeah. thing. And But the FIA is transforming these clubs into being more advocates, not just for drivers, but for transportation in general. So we provided them with uh, traffic simulation software for just typical traffic and even we're looking at things like bringing autonomous cars into the simulation but yeah so we did two pilots one was in bogota colombia and one was in singapore and you know well maybe if we introduce autonomous shuttles or this or that things would be better well wait a minute let's just take a step back and how are things now and what could you do to to make them better and and what's the goal and so usually the goal is some combination of efficiency, safety. Safety is always primary. And it seems like there's this changing landscape of scooters, e-bikes, regular cars, pedestrians. Yeah. And should the scooters be on the sidewalk? Should they be on the street? What about the bicycle? Should we give them a lane? Oh, no. Now the cars are going real slow and traffic is worse. And what about motorcycles? They're sort of like bikes. Maybe we, you can see there's all these combinations. People don't know what to do. Yeah. So we ran some simulations with different configurations of lanes and who was allowed in them, on and on and on. And the first thing we discovered, and probably of all the things we learned in this study, it was the one that had certainly close to the top and the most impact, is in this historic district of Bogota, trucks delivery trucks during rush hour were parking on the side of the road and they would change a a two-lane road down to one lane and massive traffic jams and what we found out was as long as you didn't let the trucks park within i forget the number exactly but like say 50 feet on either side of an intersection traffic flow picked up again so that's okay so wow no autonomous shuttles, and we got 10% improvement in traffic flow during rush hour just by putting up a no parking sign. That's really interesting. And that's that's a good example. Like I was sort of thinking about this sort of stuff yesterday. Um, it's Christmas holidays at the moment here, so no one's getting driven to school or picked up from school. And I was driving around um, at like 9.30 in the morning, and normally there would be cars people on the way back or whatever. And the same for like 4 p.m. And the difference in the roads was insane. And you're like, okay, right. Clearly cities are incredibly complicated. And you look at some of this stuff and you go, okay, well, the solution might be autonomous vehicles or whatever, or everyone walk or, and you look at all these things and go, okay, everyone should ride a bike. But then you have to, it gets, it seems to go suddenly just, it gets so complicated so quickly because you look at the entire city and like town planning and go, well, why do people drive? 
because they want to drive. They're driving not because it's a worse solution. They think it's a better solution for them. And then like, how do you get these people and all that sort of stuff? It's, it seems really interesting, the breakdown and how it might sort of evolve. And what do you like? What do you think in terms of town planning? And it's very different in the US as well to the UK, like your cities and stuff are very, quite different to ours um, in terms of mobility and different types. Well, um, well, you, you're, this is car chat, so you must love to drive, right? What kind of car do you drive? I, so yes and no. I love driving <laughs> and I hate driving. Um, I have, I have a couple of Porsches and my, I have a little EV. So I have a little Peugeot E208. That's what I use kind of, that gets most of the use just day to day, super easy, always charged warms up quickly, whatever, all that. Um, and then, yeah, I've got some sports cars and stuff. Um, but I don't like, I like driving, but I don't like driving. Yeah, you know I mean? exactly. Exactly. Like, so you have a sports car. Oh, give me that winding road in the Alps or in, exactly. in the, you know, Northern California. Or take that same car and I'm going to let you go five miles in a 45 minute commute from my house to yeah. where I work in Boston. Ah. Oh. I'd rather just stay home or I'd love to be in an autonomous car then or whatever. Yeah. Let my friend drive so I can do something. And I think that in a city, right, what you want is convenience. I want to be able to get to the city and get out easily. But I don't really care if I drive my sports car when I'm in no. the city. So so there's where I think So we're getting to your question is, well, OK, so how can we make movement? or whatever within the city. And it's gonna be some combination of different types of, of mobility. How do we make that efficient and safe? And so we mentioned all these traffic simulations and everything. And, and you could even think of it in two pieces. There's tra traffic simulation, and then there's predicting what's gonna happen based on knowing what's happening right now. And the simulation is in there to help, help figure that out. One of the, uh, on these projects that we did, you would think that creating a model of the traffic in the city would be the hard part. It's not so hard to do that, to actually create a model of the streets and put the little cars on it and pedestrians, yeah. whatever it is. Change a lane. It's easy to do in software. The hard thing is collecting the data. And right, okay. So how do you, you know, sometimes... If you, if you think about uh, some of the things we were, you think it should be easy to do, like they call it the green wave. Green wave is, oh, they're all green lights. They're timed yeah. just perfectly. And let's do that for the high traffic side. Like you described, one side of the road is jammed. The other one has nothing. So give the green wave to, to the other side. Well, in order to have the green wave, you got to have a bunch of data. But if you had that data... I mean, look what, what people do on the internet based on the data they find in yeah. terms of giving us ads and stuff. How hard could that possibly be? But it, it doesn't really exist yet. And it certainly doesn't exist to the point where it changes in real time when the football match lets yeah. in and out. And part of that is how do you collect the data? And so take an, interse an intersection, I think, is a great example. So when you go up to the intersection, you press that button. And you cross. Now, there could be 20 people waiting to cross, or it could have been just you. Only data you can really collect is the fact that that button was pressed. Yeah. And you don't really know how long the people were in the intersection. Uh, 
you probably know what time of the day it is, but then you had to collect it in a central location. And then you had to have these simulation and prediction tools all set up. I think all the pieces are there and we're probably getting to the point where it's somewhat of a critical mass where you start seeing more and more of that. But it's not commonplace. It's not commonplace. But it shouldn't be that hard if you can collect the information. I guess. And then that's where these sort of connected junctions, etc., start to come into play. Because in the UK, most lots of junctions have cameras now, especially in a city, whether it's monitoring the cars so that they haven't run a red light. Well, I presume it's some sort of video feed. Um, and then you might have various street cams and whatever. So there's, there's cameras. Now, who is in control of them is a different matter. And then presumably there is, there's definitely some software out there that exists around recognizing people and cars. Like, yeah, like your, your Tesla or something runs can, yeah, that's a lorry. That's a whatever. That's a person. That's a bird. So, but then, and then you have all the data of which I imagine live streaming all of that is, no small undertaking. Well, the there are startups that are doing exactly what you're saying. So, uh, and they take the technology that's used in autonomous cars. So, uh, lidars or radars or ultrasonic sensors, and like you said, even cameras. Uh, on a per on a perfectly sunny, beautiful day, maybe it doesn't happen as often in, in, yeah. in London <laughs> as it might in other places. Today. But, but on a, on, a, on a great day when the camera can see, it's not raining or, or whatever, uh, you could take those feeds and, and recognize how many people are crossing the road or this is a bus or a car, how many people are turning left, that type of thing. Absolutely. Uh, and, and the fact that there are cameras on some intersections probably gives, gives a head start on that. But yeah, you know, in some ways, it's the same problem. Uh, that you have in autonomous cars. What's the combination of sensors and all that? Maybe it's LIDAR and cameras, maybe radar, I suppose, but which helps when the weather's not as good. But yeah, that's that's exactly where, where you want to be. See, I'm not sure what those cameras are doing now. Are they there for surveillance or whatever? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but certainly that data could be used um, uh, to make things better. In some ways, it is like the internet, right? You're thinking, oh, and I'm tapping on my on my laptop. Is somebody watching what I'm doing, or are they using that information in a useful way? It's it's just a data problem with uh, a physical thing attached to it. Yeah, and it is communication intersection to vehicle, but it could be intersection to to uh, pedestrian, inter- uh, vehicle to vehicle, vehicle to pedestrian. All sorts of things. And maybe even, you know, recognizing, oh, this person here is, you know, disabled or they're in a wheelchair or something like that. Let the, we'll let the intersection run longer. There's all sorts of things that startups are starting to do now and, and certainly testing in cities. Yeah. And then the, if you just ignored all data, data privacy and all that sort of stuff, like the things that like Apple do with their AirTags, which has gone a bit, I feel like it's getting a bit interesting at the moment where... Yes, these air tags exist, and any iOS device near them tells you where they are. Like it pings any iOS device. Now, if you had something like an air tag or, or whatever that sort of system at a traffic light, you would know that six people with iPhones are standing next to it. Like you could tell that straight away. Um, but then it's like, do you allow someone to know exactly where you are the entire time and 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 all that? Um, 
But the sort of tech side of it is quite, I, I think that's quite interesting in what you could do with all of that stuff. Yeah, it's almost, you can take things that are already invented and combine them in a different way, which people are doing, like, like I was mentioning some of these startups. But then how do, how do you scale it? Cities will say, oh, yeah, we'll test this technology out on this intersection and that one. And now say, okay, we're going to put it on 10,000 intersections in our city. (laughs) And then there's going to always be people that aren't happy with it, maybe for the reasons that you said. So, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe nobody wants to be first to do it or or they want to wait and see uh, what happens bad in some other city before they do it in theirs. But, you know, it takes I I think it's going to take a little bit of time to you know, break through that. Maybe that's, that's, that's the key. The non-technical issues are, are probably bigger than the technical ones for something like that yeah. to happen, but they could transform cities. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss yeah massively and i guess that is a a similar thing with autonomous vehicles and i think we should definitely talk about autonomous vehicles to to some extent now um but before we do that can we define what an autonomous vehicle is (laughs) well of course it's a vehicle that that is, I guess you could say, driven or moves around autonomously. And autonomously means without the human being involved. But of course, I think everyone's heard about all the different levels of autonomous vehicles. Yeah, was there five? Are there five levels? Yes, yes, exactly right, exactly right. So it starts off with, well, level one is just assistance of some kind. It's not really autonomous, but the driver's still in control. So anti-lock braking or or something like that. And then you, you start to go... Some automation involved, like lane keep. You start. We're starting to see those in um, cars today, you know, like yeah. Teslas especially, even helping you change lanes and all that. But for the most part, the human is in charge. It's just helping you. And then you go from level three, four, and five is where autonomy kicks in. So five is fully autonomous. It's you jump into this pod or whatever it is, and it takes you anywhere. No problem just as good as a human. It can do everything in all conditions, right? All terrain, whatever it is. Uh, Four is, in terms of the vehicle, still the same, but you have it in some sort, they say geofence, but some limitation as to where it can operate. And there are some fours that are out there now where they say, hey, we got a more in a test mode, but there are autonomous cars being tested between the train station and the airport or at an airport or something yeah. like that. And then there's three. Three is sort of a tricky one, I think, uh, which is it takes over, but then it says, hey, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> Jump in. Well, hopefully you're not reading the paper or, you know, uh, taking a bite out of a hamburger or whatever so that your hands are available. Yeah. 
Level three is, there was early on, I think there was a lot of companies that wanted to do level three. I, I'm not quite sure. I believe Audi or Volkswagen might announce a level three, but it hasn't, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if you can actually buy a level three vehicle right now. I, what you can, apparently you can buy, I believe you can buy like level three ready in inverted commas. Um, I think, I think if you get a new S class, there's certain airports in Germany, or there might be just like one airport in Germany where you can get out of your car and it will go and park itself. Oh yeah. Well, that's like that's automated that sort of parking. Thing. Yes. But like it well, will drive around the airport and take itself somewhere else. Not just like. Well, that would be a perfect example of level four, right? Where you're saying, Hey, go ahead. It, it, you're in control, but it's only between here and the, uh, the, the parking lot. Oh, wait, no, no. I remembered what the level three bit is. The level three is on a motorway between, but it's, it's so heavily defined. It's like below 40 miles an hour on these geofence motorways, you don't, you can be on your phone, whatever, and Mercedes is responsible. But then there does have this bit, I don't know where this one fits in, where it's suddenly, if they decide that they're no longer responsible, then you have to start driving again very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think this conversation is a great example of, so what exactly is level three? Or, yeah. or take Tesla. Well, it's an autopilot. This goes <laughs> way back. self-driving. <laughs> yeah, so, well, what we meant was, so I, I think you have to have a, a standard vocabulary as to what these things mean. And even in yeah. the description you gave of the Mercedes, which, you know, in, in, at, a, at a high level, I think you're absolutely right. It's level three. But then these little things creep in. Uh, yeah. Well, level three, but it's in a traffic jam, which actually yeah. is not a bad application for autonomous driving, where you're moving a little bit, you know, yeah. you know well, three well. feet, stop, three feet. What a great time to just get on your phone or, or whatever. And then it says, hey, traffic jam is about to end, you know, take over. Yeah. That, could, that could work, I, I, I would think. I think I think the dangerous one is you're on the motorway, you're in level three, all of a sudden the car in front, I don't know, brakes real hard or who knows what, and your car says, Oh, sorry, I can't do anything about this one. It's all yours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or something pulls out or, you know, these sorts of things. I saw a, uh, I saw, there was a startup at one of the exhibitions I was at. It was actually the Detroit Auto Show. And what they had done is collected what they called edge cases. Edge cases are um, things that don't happen very often, but when they do, they can be very dangerous. Uh, and basically it was videos of, of odd things that happen to cars. Yeah. And their business was to sell these uh, videos of edge cases to companies that are making autonomous cars. And, there's two that I remember. One was they're behind this car, right, filming it, and all of a sudden the rear tailgate pops up and this big white thing comes out. <laughs> and it it didn't know what the car didn't, you know, like, what is that? Is that a, a little truck or what? But you would know to swerve, but yeah. most autonomous cars probably wouldn't know how to deal with that. And there was another one where a car uh, pulled up behind this very say well massive for a horse carriage i guess but it was a big white rear thing and it thought it was a truck but really it was a 
a horse-drawn carriage. So now I don't know. I don't know if it makes a difference or not. But you know, maybe you, if it's a horse-drawn carriage, you want to be a little careful because it's horses or something. But there's a lot of things like that 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 they don't happen very often. But when they do, they could cause a problem. And I think that one of the 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 uh, I think it was Uber. I think it was where at night it missed the uh, the Uber autonomous car missed the bicycle. Uh, the person walking their bicycle across because, and somehow it was the angle of the lights or whatever it was. Yeah. It, it didn't, even a human would have had trouble with that. But the problem is why was, didn't the radar detect it? Right. I mean, you would think that, that, uh, an autonomous car would be able to do that, but, uh, yeah, I, I think those are, those are some of the challenges. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. Let's say Tesla, you know, they've, they're doing a lot in this space or, or trying, or at least talking a lot in this space. But with at the moment they're a camera only system, um, and presumably if you get to an autonomous, let's say four five, you need to if the car is in control, it needs to be able to lose some sensors and still function to a degree to stop or pull over or whatever. Presumably that's impossible with cameras because like cameras get dirty. Uh, you, you don't ha- you need a Surely you you must need a combination of different systems, and then redundancy, I guess. Well, well, here's a a project we did it was actually for the FIA on the racing side, which illustrates exactly what you're talking about here. And uh, I know if you're uh, if, if all your listeners are familiar with rally, but in rally these cars go out and they race on dirt one at a time against the clock. Pretty much that's it. But they're going really, really fast. And if you've ever been to a rally, you can walk right up to the uh, course. Yeah. And some people walk a little bit too far trying to get that perfect, like, Instagram shot, you <laughs> know. <the> and, <laughs> and so we were hired on, on this project to uh, apply uh, autonomous car sensors to detect these spectators that were in bad locations. Because a lot of times, especially people from the media, they'd hide in the grass so the, the, and, and no one could, could find them, right? Uh, the marshals couldn't. And then right when the car was just about to get, they'd pop up and pop down like those whack-a-mole things. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So now you've got these cars. So what sensors should we use? Cam- There's an in-car camera, so let's just start with that. And uh, but maybe we add radar, maybe we add lidar. But you have to work in this challenging environment, high vibration environment. It's at high speed. There's dirt. There's dust. They run in winter conditions. They you know all sorts of different conditions. And so I remember the first some of the initial runs we did with the in-car camera uh, it was the Argentinian. Um, uh, uh, rally and perfect, beautiful, sunny day worked great. We could detect all the spectators exactly where they were. Then one of the days it rained. There's all these people with umbrellas <laughs> and stuff all jammed together. Sometimes it would think an umbrella was a person. Sometimes it wouldn't. Okay, okay, fine. And what about night? Night's real. And they run rallies at night. Yeah. There's where the camera, obviously, the car's going so fast. It, it is overdriving its headlights to some extent. They try the best they can, but depending yeah. on the turn, whatever, uh, that's why you had the co-driver sort of helps you in those situations. So there's a lot of cases where the camera just couldn't see it, but the radar could. The radar could. And so radar's good for that. 
uh, it's also good in adverse conditions, more so than, than LIDAR, because LIDAR will give you a nice three-dimensional uh, map of what the thing looks like, a, a little model. But radar more will tell you, hey, there's something there. And you can, not to the extent of LIDAR, know exactly what it is, but LIDAR, uh, great in dim light and all that, but if it's snowing or raining or a lot of precipitation, things like that, not so good. Um, also, doesn't work so well uh, when you're high, uh, through leaves and brush. Okay. And, and in fact, uh, when, when we did this rally project, they invited us to Barcelona and um, we said, hey, you have freedom to go wherever you want. And so might as well test to see how many you know, ropes we can go under, see if we ever get noticed. And yeah, yeah, most yeah. of the time people are hiding behind leaves and brush and stuff like that. And radar is actually good for that. And so once we figured that out, then, you know, combination of cameras and radars, and then should it be short range or long range? Where do we put them? You know, because you, you can't put them on the outside of the car because like you were saying, you get mud on them or whatever. Now yeah. it's not going to work. Uh, but you, you know, you can't have them near metal parts, but on and on and on. Uh, I, I think, I think that's where, like I was saying, I think that's where racing really comes in. If you can make a rally car yeah. live with these kinds of sensors in it, then you don't need that perfect sunny day in Phoenix to operate as yeah. an autonomous car. You might have a chance in that New England uh, snowstorm or that big heavy rainstorm in London or whatever. I mean, how, how on uh, that as a technological problem? Like a rally car driving through a forest with people hiding and then trying to detect those people. That is quite an intense scenario like, that you're involved in there. Like with the radar on that, does radar go through most stuff? Well, I, don't, everything- I don't really know too much about uh, other than just seeing a, you know, a radar thing on a plane <laughs> or something. <laughs> does it go... Well, there's all sorts of different types of radar. Okay. In, in general, um, it does go through some things, but not all things. So typical radar that, that's used in, in cars now will go through brush and all that. Uh, but different types of materials have different radar signatures, like metal have a different signature than wood or something like that. And in some cases, it'll actually go through it. In other cases, it won't. Um, I I have actually on my podcast uh, there was uh, a company I was talking to that had very low frequency. I think it was low frequency. I wasn't quite sure. It was it was a different type of radar in terms of the frequency band where it operated, or whatever, and it could actually see through concrete. And the idea would be you could see through uh, on a corner. You could see through the building or something like that. Right. Yeah. 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 But radar does have the ability to penetrate. More so where cameras reflected light and, and uh, LIDAR is ref- reflected um, laser, laser light. But the combination, right, is, is really good. And, that, and for us, in, in this case, we were, we were uh, looking at cameras together with, with the radar. It seemed to cover most of the situations. And, you know, it was funny, like, it was funny what would actually cause a problem in when they were running uh, in snowy conditions, rally in snowy conditions, everything was black and white. It was this high <laughs> contrast. Is that a human or is that a funny shaped tree that's shaped like a human? Uh, yeah. it was, it's sort of hard to tell, especially with you know low light conditions. 
Uh, I don't know. It made me think of sometimes when you go skiing or snowboarding, whatever, and, and it's in that twilight period and you can't yeah. see the little edges of the snow anymore. And, I, and you, you start to say, oh, I guess it's OK. It must, yeah. doesn't look like there's anything big there. Uh, but it's that kind of thing. All these different lighting conditions and, and things or glare. You go around, you go around a turn. All of a sudden there's the, a sun there. And yeah. just like it, and there's where radar actually and those types of sensors work better than a camera. But again, it goes back to these edge cases that we're talking about. Which, yeah, because on, on motorways, I've I've seen it, I've not come across it recently, but I know it was a big thing a while ago. If you go under, let's say it's a sunny day and there's a big shadow under a bridge and your car thinks that's a car as you're going under the bridge and you'd see often see, and it was like Tesla's at the time, would like slam on their brakes just as well like, before you go through under a tunnel, under a bridge or something. And you have the car behind going like, Oh, <laughs> that's interesting. But I imagine that, you know, the software has evolved and they're, they're now working out. Okay. They can see that's a bridge. So there was going to be something underneath it. And well, I think that. early on that there was that early uh, Tesla accident. I think it was four or five years ago now where, a, a big white truck crossed in front of it, and the guy the person was watching a movie or something, and and it just crashed right into when it was in autopilot. Yeah, and and I believe that the reason radar had been turned off because radar should have detected that, even though there was glare and all that, yeah. and he couldn't really see it. But they had turned it off, I think, because it was having trouble distinguishing overpasses and and, and right. things like that. So. Uh, but yeah, and but you know, over the nice thing though about all this, I mean, you can always pick on autonomous cars and say they can't do this and they can't do that. But even human drivers make mistakes. Hundred percent. But the nice thing about autonomous cars is, once that one single car makes a mistake, now all the Tesla Model Threes or whatever they are learn from that mistake. Yeah. So the learning curve should be should be a lot lot faster. Uh, yeah. You have the collective learning of all the autonomous cars that are out there. How, because, uh, you know, various companies are talking about where they are in the system. And I believe did one of the big ones for fully autonomous has just stopped. Was it Amazon? Uh, Ford. Google? Ford actually did. Ford? They, they, they divested from Argo AI. There may be some other ones. I mean, there's there's been a lot happening in the in the last six months to a year, uh, but Ford's probably the big one. I mean, they spent billions yeah. with a B on that, and and they got out. And you know, I remember I, I gave a talk in 2015. Uh, someone asked me, "Hey, do you want to give a talk on autonomous cars?" And I said, I "Guess so." Didn't know too much <laughs> what they were, and, and if you, if you go back to 2015, there wasn't a lot of activity on autonomous cars, and and at the time, I think his name was Mark Fields. He was the CEO of Ford. And I have a slide that says, Mark Fields says, in five years, autonomous cars are going to be on the road. And that would have been 2020. That would have been two years ago. And there's been a couple of CEOs, I think, since then. Uh, I think as, as recently as 2019, 2020, they were saying, hey, we're going to do a partnership with Argo AI, and we're going to have a, uh, a mobility as a service that's autonomous. And actually, they started, I believe, at the end of last year. They predicted in July that it would be going by the end of the year. So that prediction worked really well. It's only six months ahead. And then six, nine months later, they got out of the business. But yeah. 
General Motors is staying in. Uh, but you're hearing things now, like even Waymo saying, well, it's not as easy as we thought. It's going to take a little bit longer. But I, I, have, you ever, have you ever heard of the uh, Gartner hype cycle? Have you ever heard of that? No. Do you know what that is? So no Gartner idea. is like a consulting company. And they've got this thing uh, called the... Uh, hype cycle for technology and and they do one on they do one on transportation whatever it is and it starts it shows how the expectations people have for technology change over time so when you um they call it innovation trigger autonomous cars are launched Ooh, autonomous cars that's gonna be fantastic and then it goes to this thing called the peak of expected expectations so for autonomous cars that was like 2015 2016 or so and it, they're going to save the world. And I think autonomous cars stayed there, oh, for maybe a, two, three years, right? And then between 20, call it 17, and 2021, it falls down into this thing called the, the trough of disillusionment, <laughs> right? And that is when, you know, every little accident that happens, people point at it, it's never going to work. Yeah. We're getting out of the, that's exactly where we are right now. And that's a bit of, if you looked at the curve, it's a little bit, that's compressed, say. Then comes uh, the slope of enlightenment, which is, all right, are we in or are we out? And if we're in, we got to fix all the problems. And that's what's going to happen probably over the next 10, 15 years. And then eventually, I think the last thing is called the uh, 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 area of productivity or whatever, where, hey, that's a product that we have. But, but you know, there was... I gave a talk once and I uh, showed this this curve and a guy from GM comes up to me and he says, you know what, Ed, that's just like love. You meet someone <laughs> and you have the first date and you get all so excited and, and the, the peak of expected expectations, right, is when you get married and then you find out the truth. <laughs> and so either you, at that point, you're in the trough of disillusionment, you, know, you don't like how the other person brushes their teeth or chews. Who knows what it is they talk to yeah. about. And either you get divorced or you work it out. And that's pretty much, sub Ford's getting a divorce, General Motors yeah. out. So. <laughs> <laughs> how, far, how far do you think we are from the, let's say, the one, the one that would make a huge difference no, actually, no, that wouldn't make a huge difference. I was thinking, like, if I just order a vehicle on my phone, it turns up, I get in it, it drives me somewhere. To be honest, I can get an Uber that does that now, and, like, you know, it's not necessarily the best experience of whatever, blah, 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 but it's, like, that's pretty good. Um, the one that I would like is I've got to get somewhere, I get in my car, maybe I have to drive for a bit, then I get on a motorway, and it drives, and it drives for, like, two hours, and I can do whatever I like, and then I'd have to drive the last 20 minutes. I feel like we're not that far, technologically-wise. I guess maybe that's the two sides of it. Well, on, on my Future Car podcast, it was actually the last one we did this year, I had uh, the, uh, a lead technology officer from that company talk about their autonomous shuttle. And... This, this is a classic question. Like, when can I have a ride in one, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he said, two to three years. I said, wow, this is great. I'm going to be able to ask this guy all sorts of good questions. And But his point was that the key is to find the right 
path or wherever where you wanted to you wanted to actually work. And uh, for instance, between the subway and the airport or whatever yeah. it might be. His thought was the key is to get people to feel that they're going to be safe in it. And also, if it is a shuttle or something like that, the concern was privacy. Like uh, when I get in there, I'd like to have my own little cubby hole yeah. or whatever. The, the highway is an interesting one. You hear a lot about trucks and platooning where the front truck is driven by human okay. and you got a bunch uh, behind it. Um, you know... I, I don't I don't know uh, of any major pilots that are between cities. Mm. Um, not that's you know like take me from Stuttgart to Munich or yeah. something like that. Uh, I guess a pilot like that gets a little bit more tricky because you're under a lot of different jurisdictions and things like that. But uh, there was this guy uh, Bob Lutz. He used to I think Bob Lutz uh, former uh, I think his former General Motors. And he had this vision of these chains of cars, right, on the highway going like 150 miles per hour. So you would get in manually driving your car and you'd bring it up to 150. The chain would split. You'd slide in. Click. It, it's sort of it, it's not <laughs> mechanically connected. And then this they, then you would do exactly what you want to do. You're sitting yeah. in there. And when you're ready to depart, the chain sort of opens up and you take it to the exit. <laughs> I mean, uh, in a way, that's uh, in some ways there could be a, even a, a human driver in the very front one. Who knows? So yeah. like a train, a virtual train on the highway. I, I guess like, if something like that, if that sort of thing was possible, whether it's you know there's three lanes and the left lane or the right lane, whatever it is, is like it's one speed. You just kind of like lock in digitally. And then you just, you know, it keeps distance. It knows what the other cars are also doing. It, it has some idea of what's going at the front. Then, like, there's no reason why that's not possible. It's possible today, but whether you'd be allowed to do it. And, then, and I guess the key point with all of these things is, like, who's responsible? Who's liable if it goes wrong? Because all the systems at the moment, I don't think anyone, in, in at least, like, most cars, your driver is responsible. The driver's liable. Anything goes wrong, it's your fault. It's not the system's fault. You were meant to be driving. When that switches over to a manufacturer, and like, is it then on their insurance? And like, there's a probably a huge gap between those two, between someone putting their, sticking their neck on the line and going, yep, yeah, okay, we're responsible now. Yeah, I mean... And there's probably a lot of layers to that, at least several layers. Uh, there's the manufacturer. And it could be the software, too. I mean, the manufacturer and the software yeah. provider might be different. There's the owner, uh, I suppose. Or, or if this autonomous vehicle is operating in a gated community or something, maybe it's their fault because they're providing. Like, whose yeah. fault? Yeah. I think it seems like it would be. The, the thing that's great about that is if you're a lawyer, there's there's plenty of customers and a lot of people you could sue. It seems like yeah, but the um, it, it, this and, and you know this applies to a lot of places where AI might be. Is the machine truly independent or not? Truly independent or not? Because one could say, well, 
you know, I programmed it, but I didn't program it to take that right turn, you know, and, and hit your cow or whatever yeah. it is that it did and cause damage. I just programmed it to, you know, follow all the rules the way they're supposed to be. It's, it's, it's the car's fault, right? Um, and, and there's this notion in law of remoteness, and how remote is it? And, and it actually goes back, surprisingly enough, to the days of the Romans, where the, someone would own a slave, but they weren't responsible if that slave <laughs> did. Uh, so, okay, is, 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 does that apply here to uh, autonomous cars? Yeah. And, and then there's the whole thing about what's the right decision to actually make. It can get a little bit tricky. Uh, have you heard of? Have you heard about the trolley? The trolley problem. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Someone yeah. pushes so out a, a baby or whatever, and there's yeah, an old person. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Right. And and uh, MIT did this thing called the Moral Machine. Moral Machine. Have you heard about the Moral Machine? No. It's it's the trolley problem on steroids. And you go <laughs> in, and they present you all these combinations: woman with baby carriage, uh, criminal. Whatever, doctor yeah. versus baseball player. And on and on and on. And, and, and thousands and thousands of people have taken this thing. And eventually, it sort of filters out. And, you know, it's, it's surprising. The number, the, the, you're the safest if, you have, if you're pushing a baby carriage. No one yeah. wants to hurt anyone pushing a baby carriage. And then things like uh, lawyers uh, are below sports figures. <laughs> and, and at the very, very, um, and, but, and criminal is almost at the bottom, but the bottom three go, uh, the highest of the three is dog, then criminal, right. and the lowest is cat. So people <laughs> will run over cats before they will run over a criminal. But, you know, it's, it, it, there's a, there, you have to make a lot of choices, and these are pretty high-level choices, and, and uh, uh, I suppose you have the same problem with a human driver on, on some of these you things do. as well. And then, but at that point in time, it is the human driver, I guess. It is the human driver is the one that's made the decision. They've chosen to run over the old lady rather than the pram. And then they find out the pram had a dog in it or worse, a cat. And then you're yeah. like, oh no, oh no. <laughs> I should have killed the cat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was number 14 on the list. Yeah. I went after I 15. Think, what a mistake. But humans are incredibly good at i feel like making decisions like that very quickly i had one uh it wasn't exactly this scenario but i was driving down a road in london it was a 30 i was going 30 and it, i was sort of heading straight ahead and there was a turning to the left and there was a big van on the left it didn't see me and pulled out like the full length across the road so it covered both the lanes mine on the left and the lane on the right. And I, I, I hit the brakes and knew straight away that I wouldn't stop. Like it, I was not going to stop before making contact with the vehicle. And then my brain went, right, where's the exit? Yeah. And there was a gap between like the back of the car and a parked car. And I managed to like slam on the brakes, screech to a halt about a car length behind the back of this truck missing a parked car on the back of the truck by like not a lot and they're going (laughs) and the person was like oh my god i'm so sorry but like in those sorts of situations humans are quite good at making a reasonably good decision now 
driving, maybe you need to have had more bit more practice about driving so you don't freak out so much or whatever. But like we are quite good at those really complex, very quick, lots of input decisions. I think you're absolutely right. And you have to think of it though, I think in a slightly different way. Because the, the situation you're describing, if it would have been an autonomous vehicle, say instead of you driving, it's it's an environment where you have humans and robots interacting and working together, yeah. right? So in this particular case, like uh, your truck that pulled out, my guess would be an autonomous car tends to be really, really careful. It probably wouldn't have done something stupid like that. Because yeah, yeah, humans, yeah, yeah. you're absolutely right, humans would be really good to react to those situations, but also humans make mistakes that yeah. probably an autonomous car wouldn't make. And it's those mistakes that that truck did that almost caused an accident. So if you could magically say nothing but autonomous cars, things might be really slow because they can't make decisions and things like that over over time yeah. they could improve. But I think it would get safer because there'd I be think fewer so. accidents to avoid. Because I could have I could have been driving a bit slower. I was going the speed limit or whatever, but I could have been driving a bit slower. And I and now, like having had that experience whenever it was, 10 years ago or something, whenever I see someone, and this is something that I I guess you, you'd sort of program it in a different way. As a human, if I see someone waiting to pull out, I kind of try and like see if they've seen me. You know, you look at them and if they'd looked at you, I mean, a car won't be able to, like, probably won't be able to see that, like not for a while. You know that they've seen you and then you can carry on as normal. Whereas until that you, if you don't think they've seen you, you have to act as if they've not seen you and then slow down. So an autonomous car presumably is going to have to take in if those two can talk to each other fine if the one that's parked it's not going to make a, it shouldn't pull out because it's seen the other one but there is going to be that leeway point isn't there i like the idea there's going to be this middle ground as you say of autonomous cars are going to have to be really lenient does that mean they're literally it, through a city where it's busy and everyone's pulling out? <laughs> You're just never going to get anywhere because all the people not driving them are just going to It's like having a city full of polite drivers. Exactly. And, uh, oh, no, 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 you go. Oh, no, 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 you first. <laughs> <laughs> like, go, go, go. Yeah. Well, you know, so, so I grew up in Indianapolis in the Midwest and then I moved uh, to Boston. And the driving is completely different. It is the racing capital of the world. But on the streets, we're like normal people. Come to Boston. It was the first time I come to the city. And uh, for us in the U.S., a left-hand turn, you wait for traffic to pass. And then not in Boston. In Boston, they have, that, <laughs> they have the Boston left-hand turn, which is like, hurry up and go before the car's on the other. I said, wow. And a friend of mine said, watch, watch what that car does. And I couldn't believe it. And the same thing when you go into a rotary or roundabout. Never, they said, never look at the people that are in there because that takes away your right of way. <laughs> <laughs> but it's exactly, it's exactly what, what you just said. And yeah. they, they are trying to do some things with autonomous cars. I, I think there was one company that put like little eyeballs and a smile on the car. I don't know if it was, okay. you know, it was yeah, an yeah, example, yeah, yeah. but certainly like printing things on the grill or whatever. But more importantly, Going back to what we were talking about earlier with connected vehicles, it could be a connection between the car and the pedestrians that are at that intersection that that says, oh, my God, there's a, a car approaching at a speed in which it can't brake. 
and it might be able to give you more than like, you know, a, a millisecond or half a second of warning and uh, you can not step off the curb. But yeah. again, that's the kind of thing that you, that's the kind of commu- your communication you'll be able to get. Your phone could buzz as you're about to like, you've got your headphones on listening to music and you're just about to step out in front of a bus and it could go stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could. yeah. Like, well, yeah, why not? Right. Why not? Well, that's, that's better than trying to get the attention of the bus yeah. driver. Hey, I'm over here. I'm over here. Yeah, yeah. One of these will late. kill the other one. Right. <laughs> well, there was um, another shuttle company called Zooks, and I interviewed their chief safety officer, um, Mark Rosekind. And th- their whole thing was preventative safety rather than reactive. So preventative is knowing there's an accident about to happen, do something now so that it, it doesn't really happen. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense, and AI should be, help you to do that. But sometimes I think, and sometimes I think we get, we fall in love with the sensors and the AI, but they're still the vehicle itself. And what they did was, in their little shuttle, they put really oversized brakes on it so it could stop faster. <laughs> Wow, that's a great idea. That buys you a quarter of a second or something. A quarter of a second is a long yeah. time. Um, they also put in four-wheel steering. So if you want to turn left, the front wheels turn left and the, and the rear wheels turn right, so the t- turn radius is less. And you combine those three things. You know, I don't know. Maybe in certain situations they all add a quarter of a second, and you add you end up with three-quarters of a second more reaction time. And if you think about it, that's really a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, at an intersection when somebody just jumps out in front of you. Or, or even the, the classic one, I know when we first started working with Siemens Mobility, I asked them, uh, and they had these sensors at the intersections. I go, what's your, your top thing you detect that, that causes accidents that you can solve? And it was, you know when you have a lot of parked cars and you don't go to the crosswalk, instead you cross in between parked cars? In between parked cars. Park cars, yeah. No one expects you to be there. Suddenly there's a human where there wasn't one. And he said that causes that causes a lot, a lot of problems. Or people opening the door yeah. into the bike lane. Maybe there could be a thing that keeps you from opening the door if it detects a bike somewhere. I don't know. But it, there's it, definitely I've experienced various things with those ones. Like in um in Belgium, if it you learn, everyone learns when they're doing their test and whatever, and it's just drilled into everyone that you open your door with the other hand. So if you're on the left-hand side of the car, you open your driver's door, but you open it with your right hand. And what that means is you have to look back before you open the door. And also you can't open it very far. So you open it a little bit, then you look, because they've got loads of bikes. And that, like, everyone does that there, or it's, it's a very common thing, and that reduces you know, you don't need a car to tell you or anything. It's just changing human behavior slightly and you're way less likely to open a door onto a bicycle. Do you do that in, in the, in the UK? I, I don't open the door with my left hand, but I'd never open. I never like swing a door. I always crack it a little bit and just like, and check and just like a tiny bit, like just a little bit and then see, because you know, it's a great idea. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try it. I think, I think <laughs> the, it would work. The other it, one uh, the, of a similar sort of thing that I've experienced, which was really good, was driving in Sweden in the winter. So just snow everywhere. And the car I had, 
or was in was an, an it was a new Bentley Continental GT that had thermal cameras and it had the thermal display that you could set up on the dash in front of you and you're driving in the countryside and the a main problem there is all the like animals in the winter whatever, whatever they are reindeer and stuff jumping out in front of the car and it's a very real problem and it's the same sort of thing you get like in Australia with kangaroos and things they just love jumping in front of cars but I felt so much safer with a thermal camera especially in winter it's like freezing cold and then you can just see bang like there's there's an animal in the bush somewhere I can slow down or there's nothing that was transformative at driving at moderately quick speeds in the winter yeah, it's the, the sensor helped you. I mean, it, it's yeah, big time. The in in some ways, if you think of, of, of this autonomous technology, and I think Toyota originally had this, and now there's a lot of companies that go on this way is to use the sensors not to create autonomy, but to create what what they call a guardian angel. Mm. So it's doing everything an autonomous car does: perception and potential path planning, but it never takes control unless. You do something really bad. And then the guardian angel swoops in and yeah. saves you from a terrible accident. And that's a great application. Uh, great application. Probably would make the most sense. It'd be a long time before there's a lot of autonomous cars on the road. But all the technology that's been applied to that, uh, autonomous cars could now help with that. And in some ways, that's what Ford's doing. They're going to be applying what they've learned to ADOS, to driver assist yeah. systems. And, and that's probably one of the greatest ones, keeping you safe from accidents and all that. But I wanted, though, to, to mention something came to mind when you talked about the bicycles in the door. And I see this the most in Paris, uh, of all European cities, is you're on the motorway and traffic slows down a little bit. All of a sudden, there's all these motorbikes like <laughs> going down in between. And I'm thinking... I think in, uh, the Parisians or the people are, are used to that and they wouldn't dare suddenly change yeah. lanes. Oh, but if, but if you're a, a Boston driver or whatever, not yeah. used to that, you might want to try and inch your way into you know, the third lane and then you're going to block off the motorcycle. And uh, I don't know. It seems like there's the, maybe uh, there's, there's ways of uh, you know, even detecting those kinds of things that could... Uh, yeah, and they are... Like I've had it in in London, where you're you're driving along, you're in the left lane, you're turning left, and you're like, I'm about to turn left. Generally, cyclists are moving slower than cars some of the time, unless you're slowing down, then they move faster. But I was about to turn left. There was like not very much space next to me. Just about to turn left, and a motor pass, motorbike went past, like straight past at like forty or something, and you're like. Oh, wow. And I didn't see them. And I, I I feel like I hesitated for some unknown reason or whatever, or just hadn't quite got there. But there was literally a split second of, I would have been turning left and they would have just gone straight into the side of the car. And you're like, who's like, that's not my fault. But it's not massively their fault. But at the same time, it gets complicated, doesn't it? And it's kind of down to the individual, but then you get an outsider or something in and it, those scenarios get different. It's tricky. It's really tricky with, I think, fast moving, especially motor powered 
bicycles, like motorbikes and stuff and scooters in cities because they do go quite a lot faster than the traffic. Yeah, and, and the more of this mix of vehicles that you get, because that's a mixed vehicle problem, mm. but, but it's a mix we've always had. And yeah. and now you get uh, e-bikes. Well, an e-bike, when it's at full speed, it's like a slow motorcycle. Yeah. So it's part, it's a gray area where it, it's a motorcycle, but it's really a bike. And then you have scooters. Um and should the scooters be on the sidewalk or should they be? And if they're on the sidewalk, then they're weaving in and out. Um, and not to mention when they park them, they fall over and, and yeah. maybe they're blocking <laughs> yeah. the, the bike lane. And 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 then eventually uh, there's you have. So you have this melding of the street with special lanes, more and more special lanes. Then you have sidewalks. There's no rules on the sidewalk. You know, yeah. Right. I mean, and and now you've and and then you're going to have everyone talks about last mile delivery and all that. Well, okay, so so the FedEx truck pulls up and these little sidewalk drones go out and and they're going to be able to navigate going in and out of buildings. And and eventually you're going to be there and buildings will be designed so that they don't discriminate against the last mile robots or whatever it might be. but then you need to have laws of or, or regulations or something to regulate how all this works. It's hard enough to regulate with the mix we have now, which is what you were describing. Yeah. But ultimately, you know, that's that's going to be a key part of it is to is to what 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 are the rules of the road going to be and 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 they have to evolve with with the technology or else you're you know you're going to have some problems. You're going to have some problems. Yeah. And then it comes down to, as we were talking about before, the blend of, of how you structure towns and cities and whether you allow cars in, you know, really far in, or actually they're sort of relegated to the outskirts a little bit. It's difficult if you live inside, but predominantly most streets could just be bicycles, scooters, walking with some car access at very slow speeds for certain reasons or whatever. Um, but it's... It's so it's so complicated, and I think that as humans, we're really bad at accepting that it could be better. You see it in certain places; they reject. You can it get for, comfortable with the way things are. Yeah, like Amsterdam, I think is a good example. It's a lot of cycling in the center, and you can't drive through certain bits, and they've got a ring road and whatever and stuff like that. But there's a few places in the UK, Oxford and Bath, I think at the moment are considering Oxford are doing it quite a lot where they just are just chopping access to cars, just going like, nope, you can't go through there anymore. And then everyone's, rightly so, I think, pretty annoyed about that because they're fundamentally, the way they do their life has just been completely changed. But then you sometimes find, definitely with like the Belgium stuff and Netherlands and things, where they make this change, everyone hates it, and then five years later, it's the best thing on earth and they love it. But how do you do the gap? <laughs> yeah, and, and maybe you don't have to do it everywhere. You do it in a section no. of the city or whatever it might be. But you're a driver. You have a sports car. I mean, I like to drive too. But if I want to go into Boston, I hate having to find a parking spot. Yep. And then I, I, I'm in one section of the city and I want to go somewhere else. And Boston's not even that big. I mean, Manhattan or a large city like that would be much worse, right? Where, oh, it's three miles away or five miles away. 
hmm, should I walk or <laughs> should I, oh, then yeah. I'd have to park again. So I, I, I think that you have, to, you, you have to look at all these pieces together. I remember one time we were in downtown Boston, same kind of situation. We had to go far, a little bit farther than we normally did. We said, well, let's walk, but it was raining. And there were scooters and e-bikes that were right there. It was really raining. Yeah. But what if there would have been a little two-man electric pod, a little teeny one? It probably wouldn't take much more room than two bicycles side by side. Yeah. And it could have hopped in that and just drove it, you know, yeah. to the place I wanted to go. And I think it's that mix of vehicles that if you look at all the possibilities that you could have, and it's not just pedestrians and scooters at one end and autonomous shuttles at the other end, it could be little electric cars. Yeah. Or is it a car or a pod, a one-man pod, whatever it might be? And there are companies making those things. Or little shuttles that, are, that don't go more than, say, you know, 30 kilometers per hour or, you know, 25 miles yeah. per hour that you can hop on and off and it drives in the bike lane. At the speed of a bike, and and if you and if you have those vehicles, if you could make a city a clean sheet, you could probably design for this mix of vehicles. And then, if you think of what we were talking about before, all right, I can't drive into the city, but that's actually okay because I yeah. parked on the periphery, and the little two-man electric pod picked me up. Maybe it is autonomous. In which case, I'm just looking at my phone to figure out where I want to go and have dinner or whatever, yeah. that wouldn't be I, so bad. I think, and I think a lot of people look at the car as freedom and they go, yeah, but I can get in it. I can leave stuff in it. I can take it wherever I like. But actually freedom in a city is the ability to go where you like, when you like, and not have to park. And if you want to have a beer, you can have a beer and then you're not like, oh, I've got this car, so I can't have a beer or like, and park, yeah. like parking, I think people underestimate how much time and effort and money you lose parking cars. Not to mention the space. Right? And, and they space. could be used for something else. Isn't there some insane amount, percentage of traffic in definitely, I think it's in, in London, but it's something like 30% or more is people looking for parking spaces. That's just what most a lot of the cars driving around are doing. They're just looking for a car parking space. Like, <laughs> I remember uh, there, there's you can probably find it online, but it was how much space in California in Los Angeles is dedicated to parking, and it shows yeah. a map of the greater LA area, and then there's this big gigantic square in the <laughs> middle of it, and you said, "Oh my God, that's a lot of space." Right, that's being used just yeah. to park cars. I'm not sure if they were counting the cars that were actually stalled on the highway due to traffic as being parked, but yeah, there's, yeah. there's there's quite a few. There's quite a few that are, uh, yeah, yeah. If you could do that, I think. Uh, well, your freedom thing is is a really good point because when when we were when we began with our startup and and, and this is going back in, into the late '90s, early 2000s. Hmm. If I would travel somewhere, rent a car, and then. Especially if I went to the UK, then I'd have to uh, instantly learn to drive on the left hand <laughs> side. But you would ha you'd have this thing that you had to drive and park, and and now I, I hardly ever get a rental car if I'm on a business trip. It's yeah, always Uber because it's like you said, it's liberating. Take me it to is. the hotel. All right, now I want to go to the meeting or whatever it is, and it's 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 just easier. It's just easier. It is. 
And, and if, you, if things become autonomous or there's other forms of transportation, it adds to uh, the efficiency and the ease with which you can do it. Like that evening when we were sitting in Boston, regardless of the weather, if you're not taking an e-bike or a scooter, you can get into two-man pod. What about when you get in that two-man pod on a, on a sunny day? When, uh, you know, if you don't like being on a scooter, for yeah. instance, but it's all part, you just want to get from A to B as easily as possible. But hey, now let's have a few beers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was just thinking about it. Like the, we have um, these like sort of city cars that you can rent for, I can't remember what the companies are called, but um, you can rent a car for 20 minutes and generally you can park them. Like in London, you can park them pretty much anywhere. Any residence bay, they've done a deal with the council. So you can pick up a car from somewhere near your house, drive it. You just pay for the time you're driving it and then you can park it up. But, and we have dedicated, some dedicated car club bays. Like I've got one on my street that's got a, a little Peugeot E208 or something in it. And you can go and rent that car for half an hour, 45 minutes an hour. Now with EVs, I've not seen it yet, but that parking space could have a charge point. And you could literally, when you give back this car... You just plug it in and then you've got a car that's got probably full, a full tank, you know, battery all the time. And then you're like, okay, if there's a few of those on my street, how often do I actually use a car? You're going to get a lot more people like that who go, maybe I don't need to own a car. If there's, if there's always a car available when I need one, then maybe I don't need to own one. And it depends on what you city in. Yeah, or maybe you have just one that you keep. Yeah, it's not that expensive to keep that you keep for the long trips or when you want to tow a trailer or something or whatever it might be. But yeah, absolutely. And there's where I think those small EVs might come in handy. Uh, there's a company here in the Boston area called Indigo, and they I've make these them. little electric vehicles. Have you heard of Indigo? They I've little electric vehicles, three wheels to. to um, uh, and they took the uh, suspension and and the wheel mo- and have wheel motors. So all all the suspension wheel motors are right where the wheels are, which makes although the vehicle's small, it still has surprisingly a lot of room inside. And his mm. target market is the gig economy to do exactly what you just said. These things are lined up. Hmm. I'm going to deliver sandwiches this afternoon, or I'm going to yeah. be an Uber, and I don't have the overhead of uh, having to own my vehicle or maintain it or whatever it might be. and But you're right. If, if one of those little Indigo three-wheel cars was right down the street or not far or, or in a big parking lot that I could drive to in my town outside of Boston, I wouldn't mind taking one of those in. Why not? Yeah, especially right. if you can then park it anywhere. Like with these ones, you can pretty much park them in any residence bay, which is a lot easier than parking which is, I don't know really have this where you are. There's like, we have a zone that's like, whatever, a couple of blocks that is our bay. We can park anywhere in that area. And then outside of that, you're not allowed to park. Whereas these things, they can park anywhere in those. Um, so like, yeah, it so does, it just opens up the possibility. Well, you, your point is, is a real good one, which is a preference for certain types of vehicles. And what's that preference really based on? And one thought is when you're traveling in a city, you're actually renting space on the road for a certain period of time. So if you could, if you could say, all right, we're going to charge you 
by the amount of time and space you use. So if you've got a vehicle that's one square meter and you use it for one hour, it's one hour yeah. meter squared of cost. Now, yeah, if I yeah. have, if that same person drove an SUV, you know, a big, you know, Cadillac Escalade yeah. in, they'd cost them 10 times as much. And then you that. could even start to do things like, well, if it's electric, um, we're going to give you a 50% discount. And, or maybe you don't want them to drive on certain roads because, and, and you have time, hey, these roads here are 25% less until 4 p.m., on and on and on. And then I think by doing that, you redistribute traffic. You'd, uh, if you have goals of, of providing transportation to certain areas of a city where it's not served properly, that kind of thing, or emissions. But in the end, okay, you want to drive your Cadillac Escalade into the center of London just by yourself? Well, then yeah. you're going to pay a lot, a lot of money. Yeah. But why should the person in the little smart car or maybe even a one-man pod pay exactly the same as yeah. the person driving that, right? Um, and, you know, we, we talked early on about data. It's that kind of data is what you really need. Okay, this signal signifies a one-man pod. This signifies a, a large SUV. As you enter the gate, it automatically charges you or whatever yeah. it might be uh, or gets the clock ticking for that time per square foot charge. I think it would be really interesting to have that. I don't know whether I necessarily want that, but like I like that sort of system, whether it's like if you've got a massive car with one person in it, like you don't need that. So like there should be some penalty for operating a massive car with one person in it. If you've got seven people in it, then it's seven people, then fine. Like that's okay. But yeah, we should. And and these, th it's, I think it's, it's really interesting how these things are going to evolve. And I'm heavily involved in the car market, but I like all the different solutions and it's better. Like if I could cycle everywhere and it was a really nice experience, I would rather cycle. Like, it, like if it was a nice experience to do and I could drop my bike off and it wasn't going to get stolen and like, you know, whatever, or I rent one and it's easy and they're well-maintained and maybe they're electrically assisted, that sort of stuff. Like if we can make it easier and nicer and better, people will just change their habits you're not forcing them to change their habits. Yeah, it's carrot just, versus a stick. It. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and, and you, as drivers, as people that like to drive sports cars or enjoy just the idea of driving, you really, I think you have to split those two worlds. There's, I enjoy driving. And I just want to get there because what I really enjoy yeah. is what I'm going to do once I get there. For, in that world... All these combinations of vehicles or whatever, hey, I'll put up with the lower cost electric small footprint vehicle that brings me into the city. And on the other hand, you can't always be by that beautiful Alpine road, you know, where you can drive your car. Yeah. So I still race go-karts with my son. Nice. And, 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 you know, I don't know how many races in a year, maybe 10 or something like that. One, one every month or so when, it, when the weather's uh, can, you can do it. And it's really great for just getting that, you know, now you're wheel that's to boss. wheel and you can yeah. cut people off or I don't know, <laughs> maybe that's not the, the, the right thing to say, but you, you know, you're out breaking into a turn yeah. and you're at the limit and hey, sometimes you go off or whatever, 
But, you know, if you really like to drive, that's how you, that's, those are the kinds of things I think that you have to look for and keep those two things. There's transportation and driving will become like a, it'll tend as autonomous vehicles in this world we're trying to create here becomes reality. Driving will become like a sport, like just like riding horses is a sport now. It didn't used to be. Yeah. And and I, I, on that one, I, I get the more track driving I do and I do some racing and stuff like that, the more I do of that, the less, I definitely don't drive anywhere near as fast on a road now because I'm, it's a different experience. And I know that I can't push, like you say, in a go-kart or whatever, you know that you're flat out. <laughs> you're pushing hard and like, yeah, okay, if you come off or if you slide wide a bit or whatever, it's fine. You can't do that on a road. Like you can't do it. And once you've done it in a car or whatever, you do, you have to be aware that on the road is different and it's not the same. So don't try and make it the other one. You have to like distinguish between the two and just accept that this is the situation and enjoy it for a different, you know, whether it's the view and the sounds and the feel and, and whatever. But like trying to maximize your cornering chi on a single yeah. lane road. <laughs> no, you're right though. It's, uh, you got to get your fix of, uh, of G forces and, and potentially sliding out and, and what it might be. But I had a, a Honda S 2000. It was a 2000 mm-hmm. Honda S 2000. Yeah. And it's practically like a go-kart. There is no traction control or anything like that. And, um, you know, not to say I actually did this. It might have been somebody else driving my car. But when they came off the motorway, you know how you have the, like a tight, we say like a yeah. clover leaf. And, you know, how fast can you actually go on, on that <laughs> and, and break at the very end when you get on the end? Yeah. I could probably, that's, you could, a Honda S2000, I don't know, 50 miles an hour. But you're on the edge, right? Yeah. You're on the edge. And, and uh, I have a, a Porsche, a Boxster. And it has traction control and this and, and, and sport mode and, yeah. I don't know, a grandma or anyone could take that thing and drive it at 60 miles per yeah, hour yeah, on yeah, the yeah. exact same road. And it's not, it's like nothing. It's like, you know, so for that, you know, in, in that mode with the suspension and everything set up in that way, you would have to drive it at 80 or I don't know yeah. what the number is. I don't dare go yeah. go that More, fast. But yeah. Yeah. So, um Anyways, yeah, and, and, and so if you want to get the joy out of that, uh, uh, you have to do that on a track, I would think. You do. It, or or I, th- I think a lot of people now are going, definitely in the car, amongst people I know anyway, they're starting to gravitate towards older vehicles with less grip because of that thing. Like if you're on the limit at 30 miles an hour, now there is a point when it gets, you know, stupid. If you're on the limits at five miles an hour, maybe on snow, that can be quite fun. But at the same time, five miles an hour on a dry bit of road, it's possibly a bit slow. But if you're on the limit at 50 or 40, that's fun. And you're not speeding. And if the consequences are nowhere near as bad as if you're going 80 miles an hour, you're not going to travel so far if you do come unstuck. Um, yeah, and I think that's probably the thrill of a go-kart because it's not going to go nearly as fast on the straightaway, but then you don't slow down that much. In no. the turn. <laughs> so. And you're like fully in a go-kart. You're, most people are fully committed. I think you're just, you're like on it and you're like, okay, yeah, it's moving around a bit. Okay, I'm going to dance it yeah. on or if it's wet or whatever, you learn a lot. Um, yeah. Right. Well, I normally wrap these up with five questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? 
You know, I'd have to say, uh, so my, uh, my parents come from the Friuli, which is in, in, um, uh, in Italy, south of the Alps. Mm-hmm. And we were in Munich, and we drove from Munich to uh, Pordenone, which is a town in there. And to do that, you have to drive through the mountains. Sometimes it's tunnels or whatever. But when you come out of those mountains, and we stayed away from the motorways, yeah. that was the... That was one of the greatest drives. And, you know, part of it was these windy roads going up and down mountains and all that. But sometimes you just sort of stop and, and look at a, a vineyard or something. Or, or maybe yeah. it, was, it was like some cows by a fence. I don't know whatever it was. But I'd say that was probably my most memorable drive. Yeah, that's, those sorts of drives. I've done lots of sort of Alpsy parts of Europe in, from various countries and whatever. And that's it. Like it's... I think the thing I sort of forget when I've not been in a while is just the scenery. I guess fun to drive the roads. That is fun. But then, like you say, when you just stop and you just take it in, you're like, wow, no, this is really cool. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> look, a cow. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, if you could only drive one car, sports car, for the rest of your life, what would it be? That's a great question. And, you know, and, and I think about, I still have the S2000, mm. and then I have this Boxster, Boxster S. And if I had to pick between those two, I would pick the S2000 because of what you were saying. You have a connection to the road, and you can feel it, and it's it's not as forgiving. You have to know how to drive it. So... I would, you know, it would be something like the S2000. But you know what? I'd have to take like a, a Ferrari California from maybe. Nice. Yeah, that's the one from Ferris Bueller's day, day off. But yeah. I think they go for like four or five million dollars at least. Yes. Maybe more now. I don't know. That would be very nice. That I think that's nice. what would you what would you take? I, I would for me, it would have to be some sort of 911. Um, so I have a. 997 Gen 2 GT3 RS, like wing, manual, stuff like that. And that is, that's pretty good. It's not like super, super modern by modern, modern standards. So what is it, 10 years old, 12 years old now? But that's possibly too capable. I think I would possibly even go older. So like maybe like 993. So what's that, 2000, early 2000s. So like less, less capable, bit older, you feel a bit more, go a bit slower, but less grip. Something like that. And then I could do everything with that. I could put a kid in the back, luggage, whatever. So that, something like that for me. Um, what do you think is, and this may not be a, a particularly a, a strong one for you, what do you think is the most undervalued car at the moment? What should be worth more? Oh, undervalued. That you can buy today or like from... As in technically buyers, and you might maybe used, maybe new, but like, should be worth more. Well, that's a good question. A friend of mine bought a Camaro convertible Camaro GT, like a, mm. with the with the two white racing stripes on top. Yeah, and uh, uh, and he had to do some work on it because he borrowed a bunch of tools. And I said, "Wow, how much did you pay for that?" It, the body was in perfect shape. And he said $50,000. He said he'd been saving all his life yeah. for doing that. 
is that undervalued? I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't really know. But I, I would think, I'd have to think about that a little bit. But for me, I would bet that there's some like old British, you know, convertible or something oh, like that. Sure. I've always had convertibles all my life. So I like yeah. the two-seater convertible. That I bet if you pick the right one that no one is really, you know, uh, less popular. There's got to be something out there that, that, that. But then, of course, you have to put up with the fact is if it is one of those British ones, it's, it's going to catch work. on fire or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's got it's got a roof, but it might as well have no roof. The same amount of rain gets in, um, all, all that sort of stuff. Um, what is the most interesting car or interesting car tech yeah, car for you at the moment? That's uh, uh, most interesting car tech. That's a good question. Um, well, certainly there's all these driver assist systems and, and, and things like that. Um, I mean, some of those are to make it easier to drive. Some of those are like lane changing and things like that. There's all this connected vehicle technology that you're starting to be out there. You know, what's really interesting, I think, though, is the ability to update cars on the fly. Mm. And certainly there's the software part of that. But I think it's interesting in that if you load in all the hardware in a car and then only turn on what you pay for. So, for instance, like the heated steering wheel, being able to have that only from December to March and the air conditioning, the other part. Or I want to try out, uh, you know, the super sport mode or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that has the potential to really make driving fun. Because when you buy it, now you're stuck. I keep cars a long time. You're stuck with that setup for 10 years, right? So I think I think that's probably something that would be interesting. Uh, and then when you buy a used car, you could even reconfigure it to have the you options kids, yeah. that you want in it. The manufacturers would love that, wouldn't they? I yeah. think it's, I think it's, there's a really fine balance with some of that stuff. We're hearing a lot about that that's in the news at the moment whether it's like bmw have said you know you've got to pay extra to have your heated seats or or whatever i I think if i think if it's all priced in at the beginning so like you're not paying more to have this stuff even though you've got it but like you haven't got it and then it, it it seems the idea of floating like a subscription for i can't remember who it was someone was talking about performance was it Mercedes maybe who was saying you could pay a thousand dollars a year or whatever it is and you could have another hundred horsepower and you're like okay but then do I have to pay that every year or do I pay it once and then I've got it what if I sell the car do they get it no they don't get it like there's there's all those sorts of I think it'd be interesting to see how that develops I'm a bit wary of it if I if I've bought it and it's in there I kind of want it there but then Cars could be cheaper because of the logistics. If they're only making one car, you know, ish, right, rather right, than yeah. fifty combinations, then that car should be cheaper. And actually, you're you're spending less on the car in the first place. So if you spend a bit more to have the options you want, then that's probably all right. And then there's another uh, aspect to that. Henrik Fisker, he's got his new Ocean SUV, mm. and his pricing model is, you, I think it's like. $3,500, you're in, and then you pay $350 a month. Turn it in anytime you want for a new one. Yeah. But Okay, I'm tired. 
What 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 do you got? <laughs> it's an interesting you, idea. I I think if you had like let's say you had one car but you had it on a on a, a monthly fee and people might do that anyway now, like lots of people do. You pay I've got a car that's on a monthly amount. But if you can then change it out for a bunch of different cars within the same price bracket or whatever and you go, "Okay, well, at the weekend, I want a sports car. During the week, I might want a small city car. And then five times a year, I might need a big vehicle that I can put all the family stuff in, but not have to buy three different cars or two different cars. I think that is quite interesting if, if, if the economics can work and whatnot. Yeah, and, and it and it uh, you go online and you select it and it autonomously comes to you and your other yeah. one goes away. Make yeah. sure you take all your stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a few companies that are trying. I think Volvo tried something like that. Um, well, but I think though that's a good point. It's this whole freedom of having what you really want or being mm. able to do what you really want to do. And and maybe you could even say at any point when you find your dream car, you can uh, convert it over to permanent ownership. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's a great idea. No, I it's, like it's, it. it's, I think and it would be in, it's interesting to see how these things are, are going to evolve. Right, final question. Five-car garage, unlimited value. Oh, wow. Well, okay. We'll start off with that, that Ferrari California. <laughs> 250 California, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Then I'd want a Porsche Carrera GT. Nice. Definitely would yeah. want that in there. Then, let's see. Let's see. What else would I put in there? I think I'd, I'd like that Jaguar E-Type. I think I'd, nice. I'd want one yeah. of those in there. Then, um, let's see, let's see. What's your sort of day-to-day car? Yeah, oh, you're this? right. I'm going to, I have to live with these cars then, right? You do, yeah, and you only have the five. I only have the five. So, I think I would want some sort of a pickup truck. So, because I had to tow the go-kart trailer or right. something yeah, like yeah. that. So, you know, you know the Ford Raptor, you know that mm-hmm. Ford... I really like that, but I wish they would make it a little bit smaller, like shrink it down to like a mid-size yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Like the Ford Ranger Raptor. I would have one yeah. of those. I'd have one nice. of those in there. And I have one more, right? One more. Then I would pick some sort of a, a really nice, uh, why not have like, since I can have so many, I'd probably pick some sort of luxury car, I think. But... But then on the other hand, I mean, you could have a Bentley or something like that, but maybe that could become boring too quickly. I'd probably pick some sort of high performance, some sort of, you know, like a, an F40 or something mm-hmm. like that, a Ferrari F40. Uh, nice. Maybe, maybe a high-end Porsche or something, but I think I'd, I'd stick with something Italian. I'd have I to think go that would be a good, That'd be a good bunch. You've got a lot of bases covered. You've got your convertibles. You've got an old convertible. You've got a new convertible or newish. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be good. Cool. Well, thanks very much for, for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It was great fun. Yeah, it was good. And how can the audience, the listeners, find you? You've got a podcast. What's your podcast called? It's called uh, Future Car Podcast with Ed Bernardin, the Siemens Future Car Podcast with Ed Bernardin. And you can find me there and, and talk to a lot of people uh, in, in the uh, racing and uh, autonomous EV business. So a lot of things like we were talking about today. Cool. Well, thanks very much. Ellen, thank you for having me, Sam.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.